the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Exodus 19.4, God is speaking. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You know, I want to be carried in life. What about you? I want to be carried. I want to be carried on eagles' wings, God's wings, from slavery to freedom. You can't get there unless God carries you there. That's Pastor Michael Oxentenko with just a little bit of what you'll hear today on Reaching Your Heart. Today's message is entitled, Naomi's Baby, Alive Again. At Reaching Your Heart, we believe God answers prayer. Won't you let us pray with you? The phone number is 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE. Please stay with me for just a few seconds after the broadcast today. We have a very special offer we'd like to give you. Here now is Pastor Michael Oxentenko. And so Naomi, in a way, is typical of God's people at the very end. People who have been testing with this, doing that, and have lost their moorings in the Word of God. We need to go back to the house of bread. Verse 6, the text reads, Then she started with her daughters to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. For Naomi, her journey back was at the time of the spring barley harvest. In in ancient Israel, the barley harvest coincided with the Passover and the celebration of the Exodus when God redeemed his people from slavery and he fed them with manna from heaven. For every year that they were to gather together at Passover time, they were to remember that God had taken them out of Egypt, that he had rescued them, that he had then given them the sacred bread from heaven. And as they gathered and they worshiped together, they knew that the God of the past was still present with them. But for 10 years, Naomi and her sons had fed themselves on the fading fortune of a pagan culture. And now sick and tired of eating out of the secular humanist trash cans of Moab, she wanted bread from her own land. God's land, God's bread. She wanted to go home to God. And friend, if you're there in your life today, that's a good place to be. If you are just tired of hearing stuff that is not from God's word, then it's okay to come home to the church and hear the word of God, the food that saves you. She wanted that kind of food. So in the story, she makes a beeline back to the house of bread, hoping that maybe, just maybe, there'll be a few morsels of real bread and other kind of bread left for a widow in the house of bread, God's house. In the verse that follows, she tries to send Ruth and Orpha away to remarry and begin their lives anew in their own land. They're not part of her land. You know, they come from a different culture. And thinking of them, she says, well, just go back to your people. I'm going back to mine. Our lives will part now. Naomi's reasoning is powerful in verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I left sons in my womb? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? I mean, life back then was rotated around how many children you have. If you didn't have kids, your life came to an end. You had no future. Of course, the answer to this question is obvious, no. There's an interesting wordplay used here. The word used for womb in the Hebrew sounds almost identical to the word for grain. 
An empty ma'e, womb, means an empty harvest of ma'a, grain. Simply stated, a barren womb means a barren harvest. No grain for Naomi. No sons, no daughters, no seasons for life. No hope for her, it seems. No spring, only wilted flowers instead of the fresh bud of life. In verse 22, we read, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so scene one ends, and Naomi is home again, a beggar in the house of bread. You know, that's not too bad. If you're a beggar in the house of bread and you've come home to God, it's better to be there than to be wealthy out there going to ruin. So she's where she needs to be. In scene two, our heroine discovers that there are wings of refuge in the house of God. Chapter 2, verse 1, the text reads, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Boaz is a rare name in the Bible. It seems to carry the basic idea of strength. The only other usage of this name is 1 Kings 3.21. In this verse, it is a name given to one of the two bronze pillars which stood at the door of Solomon's temple. Many scholars believe that these two pillars together, in relationship to the door, represented the tree of life. One thing is clear from the context. Boaz is a tree of life and hope for a broken woman without a family. He is a pillar in God's temple for a woman who has lost her vital connection with heaven. I mean, let's face it. God doesn't want you coming to church so you can just stay immature the rest of your life. As you weather your difficulties and as you are settled into the church culture, it is God's will that you grow up and you become a mentor, a source of strength for others. And Boaz had made that journey from weakness to strength. He lived for others, not for himself, to edify the body. So as the story unfolds, Ruth decides to go begging for grain for her mother-in-law in the fields of Boaz. A providential decision it was. And she is picking up the sheaves besides the workers. But here she is working, and Boaz suddenly notices her and asks his servants the question, Who is she? When his workers tell her that she is the daughter-in-law of Naomi, he instantly understands that God is doing something here. And so he begins to interface with the need. In Ruth 2.12, Boaz treats her with dignity. He shares the gospel with her. He welcomes her into the family of faith. Now, he's a perfect example of what a greeter ought to be. He doesn't say, well, why are you here? What are you doing in our church? What kind of problems did you bring here? You know, that kind of thing. Why aren't you dressed the way everybody else is? He doesn't say that. He wants her there. I mean, he knows she's a Moabitess. Now, Moabite is not the kind of person you want in your holy realm back then. They were enemies of Israel. He doesn't care. He sees an opportunity for this person to become a member of the sacred faith, not someone kept out. He says, the Lord recompense you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. An amazing statement to an unbeliever. Yes, the Bible is clear. Not only the outcast and the forsaken find food in the house of bread, there is also a refuge and shelter for those who would normally not belong under the wings of the Almighty. The figure of speech reminds us today of the wings of a bird. But to the ancient Israelites, it was simply a metaphor that meant something much more profound. It alluded to two things in particular. First, it was an expression of faith in the God of the Exodus. It captured the words of Moses 
as God described his deliverance of his people from Egypt. Exodus 19.4, God is speaking, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You know, I, I want to be carried in life. What about you? I want to be carried. I want to be carried on eagles' wings, God's wings, from slavery to freedom. You can't get there unless God carries you there. And so this picture, the, the words that, that Boaz is adopting here, these words are a description of what has happened in the past. Secondly, it was also an affirmation of faith in the God of the shadows. In the most holy place of the sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant dwelt in total darkness. And shielded in that darkness, the light of God's glory shone from between the wings of the cherubim. That was the most sacred spot in the Hebrew sanctuary on the holy mountain. Turn with me to 1 Kings 8, verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has set the sun in the heavens, but he has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have built thee an exalted house, a place for thee to dwell in forever. God dwelt in the shadows in the sanctuary. He was the God of the shadows. And whenever you read about the wings of the Lord in Psalms 91, it is an allusion to the wings of the Ark of the Covenant where God is enthroned. Under his wings we find refuge in the final time of trouble. That means in his pavilion, in the sanctuary, in the most holy place by faith, covered by the wings. Hope, friend, hope in God is the thing with wings that makes the soul to fly. So Boaz's message is simple and yet profound. A one-sentence statement of the gospel. Yes, Ruth, tell Naomi that God still acts in human history and that his story is her story too. Tell her that God has an exodus today from famine and slavery. Tell her that God is the God of the living and the dead, but more significantly for her, the God of the living. Yes, Ruth, tell Naomi that the God of the shadows is shielding her under his wings. Tell Naomi, tell her now. In Ruth 2.20, Ruth returns and shares the gospel according to Boaz with her mother-in-law. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a relative of ours, one of our nearest of kin. And suddenly the frowning lady is a smiling lady looking to create a pathway for a future. In scene three, which we now transition to, Naomi finds a kinsman redeemer in the house of bread. In ancient Israel, God made a special provision for widows who did not have children so that they could preserve the family name. He ordained that a kinsman redeemer, a goel in Hebrew, kinsman redeemer, the closest of kin, would take the widow for wife and raise up children in the name of her dead husband so that name would not be removed from Israel. It was a way of living on when circumstances had brought a family line to an end. And through him, she would live on and have a future. Now, there were obvious liabilities to this kind of thing. Namely, it meant that the next of kin would have to provide for more than one family member. And that was tough in ancient times. There were deadbeat dads back then just like there are today. So the intrigue continues in Ruth 3, verse 1 to 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek a home for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maidens you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. 
But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Isn't this story kind of earthy? It is. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Now, I'm not going to go into the graphic imagery here, but the word feet is a euphemism for other parts of the body. We know this from Isaiah chapter 4. This is the time of the judges. This is not the time that we live in. This is the time when every man did what's right in his own eyes. And Naomi is doing what's right in her eyes. She believes the Lord's directing her course of her future. She wants her daughter to kind of hook up here. And she's not yet back home with all her thinking. So as the sun sets and the workers find their way to their own beds, a lone, solitary soul crosses the threshold in the cool of the night. A rustle, a howl in the night, and Boaz stirs. And the shadowy phantom merges with the bags of barley stacked beside the threshing floor. Sure, his meal is working against him. His fears are the result of overwork. Boaz settles to sleep and slips into a comatose state of snoring. Suddenly, a cold, clammy hand is felt beneath the cover, grabbing his feet as he awakens to encounter his foe. Is it a vicious beast ready to attack? Perhaps an assassin stands poised to steal his fortune. No. To his horror and delight, it's a woman. And of all women, it's the virtuous Ruth. Even more shocking than the surprise is her request. Look at verse 9. I mean, this is like a soap opera, isn't it? I mean, who says the Bible has boring stories? I'm just reading it the way it is. This is in the Bible. And notice verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Spread your skirt over your maidservant for your next of kin. Now that's earthy language. Evidently, this was an ancient form of proposing for marriage right now. In the Hebrew, she literally is asking Boaz to spread his wing over her. Now you've heard that before in the story here. Spread your wing over me, she says. In other words, I don't know much about God, Boaz. Sure, you've told me that under his wings there is refuge. But Naomi tells me that you are his wings. What do you say, Boaz? Will you cover me with your wings? I don't know if this is holy boldness or not. It's just boldness, probably. But in any case, it worked. Boaz replies in verse 12, And now it is true that I am a kinsman. Yet there is one nearer than I. Remain this night and in the morning. If he will do the part of the next of kin for you, you see, Boaz is a moral man. He doesn't take advantage of her. If he'll do the part of the next of kin for you, well, let him do it. So he's a moral man. But if he is not willing to do the part of the next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will do the part of the next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So he is a man of self-control, of principle, who is not willing to do things in a wrong kind of way. The following morning, Boaz loads Ruth up with barley and sends her home to Naomi. Now, this is not just food. It's a symbol of something. There, greeting her at the door and chewing on her fingernails with suspense is the strategist that General David Petraeus would be jealous of any day. Waiting in more suspense than any sin-sick soap opera could ever invent. I think all my children, I, I went on Google and I, I looked at Wikipedia for all the current soap operas. I have a sense of them in my memory, but I think all my children still playing, right? Well, you don't know. Good. I don't watch them either, but I was just checking it out. And as the world turned, Ruth turned to her mother-in-law to tell her about the young and the restless. And Amy, of course, couldn't wait to ask about all the days of her life and all her children, I guess, that haven't been born yet, but could be. 
I mean, this is what's happening in this story. This is a soap opera from God's perspective that ends with a holy outcome. You are listening to Reaching Your Heart. We'll continue with Pastor Michael Oxentenko's message in just a moment. But first, do you want to understand the Bible better? Do you have difficult questions? Have you ever wondered if God is so good, why do we live in such a bad world? What does the future hold? We know that you'll find answers in these new in-depth, full-color Bible study guides available for you with a donation of any size supporting this ministry. The phone number is 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE. Call now. Now more with Pastor Michael Oxentenko. And as the world turned, Ruth turned to her mother-in-law to tell her about the young and the restless. And Naomi, of course, couldn't wait to ask about all the days of her life and all her children, I guess, that haven't been born yet, but could be. I mean, this is what's happening in this story. This is a soap opera from God's perspective that ends with a holy outcome. It's not, it's not foolish stuff. Her answer in verse 17 meant nothing to Ruth, but it meant everything to Naomi. It is just the thing that Naomi is hoping for. Ruth replies, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Yes, grain. Grain for the bosom of the woman with no harvest. Ma'e, grain, that wordplay for the woman with an empty tomb. Ma'a, an empty womb, which is an empty tomb for her. Yes, it's springtime, Naomi, and there's hope for you. There's life for you, and there's a harvest for you. And most of all, there is light at the end of the tunnel, for there is indeed a God of the shadows. Go tell Naomi. And under his wings, Boaz has offered Naomi a refuge. Tell her that. Naomi had no doubt that Boaz was a pillar in the temple of God, for he had agreed to be her kinsman redeemer. Boaz didn't spare any time taking care of the matter. The next day, he met the only rival to his claim at the gate and reminded him of all the responsibilities of raising someone else's child, being married to pesky Moabite, of IRAs and child care and health care costs and Social Security service agents breathing down your neck. The man's reaction was a very predictable one. Then the next of kin said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take the right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. And well, Boaz says, if you insist, I guess I'll have to marry Ruth. While on the inside, Boaz was bursting at the seams, ready to explode with joy. Yes, I have the woman of my dreams because she's God's providence in my life. The maiden is mine. And before it was all said and done that day, Boaz bought the field from Naomi and accepted Ruth as his wife. And the other guy walked away quite satisfied that he didn't get shafted with an ugly Moabite hag and costly child payments to Naomi. In scene four, we find in the house of bread that there is hope for the living and the dead. With Naomi's baby, not Ruth's, Naomi's baby, Naomi has discovered that she can live again. Ruth 4, 13 to 17, the Bible says, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and there the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who loves you more than sons and daughters, has borne him. And notice the punchline in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom. Ma'ah. 
the word play on, on the word grain, ma'e, ma'e, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And if you follow the genealogy all the way down, the father of David, he becomes the father of the son of David, who is the son of God, the Messiah, Jesus. Revelation 22.16, I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. This brings us Jesus. Naomi's child is ultimately Jesus. For nearly 400 years, there had been a famine of sorts in the land. As the nation sank into economic despair and spiritual apathy, the fabric of society began to crumble. And every quarter, the cry went out for a kinsman redeemer, not a redeemer from inner slavery, only someone to feed the mouth, pad the pocketbook, and crush the Romans. That's the kind of redeemer they wanted that year. It was the time of the barley harvest all over again. A million people were gathered at Jerusalem to celebrate the harvest that year. Many were hoping that maybe this would be the last year of the famine when the Messiah would appear to destroy the Romans and feed the Jewish multitudes. And paradoxically, most of the celebration that year was devoted to the execution of a Judean carpenter born near the fields of Bethlehem. Yes, something had to keep the theologians and religious leaders busy. So this year they were killing the man from the house of bread. Now put yourself in the mind of the man who met the carpenter on the road to the execution. As a sojourner from Alexandria, you have come to keep the feast. On your way to Jerusalem that day, you have been dialoguing with yourself and God. Personal doubts have tormented you. Your family has left, has felt the heavy hand of Roman taxes with no health care plan to boot. The stock market has crashed, and even this trip to Jerusalem has nearly canceled your plans because of the dangers of terrorism. But even more disturbing than this is the state of your soul. For years, the empty rounds of worship in the synagogues and the dead formalism of the Pharisees has all but convinced you that this religion thing is a big joke. For years, you have hoped that the Messiah would come, and for years, the hope has gone unanswered. In discouragement, you think to yourself, perhaps there is no God. Perhaps there is no forgiveness for my sins. Perhaps there is no harvest from the grave. And maybe, just maybe, the God I've been worshiping for all these years is nothing more than the God of the shadows. And suddenly your eye catches a mob of religious leaders and soldiers dragging a man with a cross up a jagged hill near the eastern gate, going to the hill to the altar of sacrifice on the Mount of Olives. Strange destination for a cross. That's where you're going because there's an altar at the top of that hill, and that's where this Passover lamb is to be sacrificed. And as you gaze upon the site, you think to yourself, this must be the one I've heard of, the man from Bethlehem. Strange thought, the paradox of it all. The man from the house of bread being executed at the celebration of the barley harvest. Drawn by the scene, you follow him to the place of his torture and execution. The piercing crack of the hammers against cold steel evokes no cry from him. And as the cross is raised, the heavy clouds begin to roll in from the Mediterranean. Lightning cracks and the thunder rolls upon the first fruits of the harvest. The seasonal rains are just on time, and this year you think to yourself, it's going to be a good harvest. And as the seasonal rains flood the Judean countryside, a thick cloud of a shadowy and eerie darkness begins to settle over the criminal. Now that cloud is very similar to the one that you've experienced in recent days. 
It has a supernatural quality to it. And looking upon the scene, you are convinced that this is no ordinary criminal. Higher crimes are being paid here. And higher prices are being atoned for. And suddenly a scream echoes the sentiment of your broken heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Shrouded in the mystery of the black cloud, you hear this man speak to you as a part of the mob. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And suddenly the earth shakes and the rocks are hurled from the mountains. The lightning of the paradox. Truth is occurring in the midst of that storm. Flashing through your mind a ray of hope flooding the darkest room. The burning paradox of the man from the house of bread dying on a cross at the celebration of the barley harvest. Could it be? Yes, it is. The words of Micah rouse within your mind. O you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from eternity. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in travail is brought forth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the people of Israel. The criminal dying on that cross and praying for you is the Messiah. He is the broken bread from the house of bread. And now you know, and no one can steal the truth from your heart. It is harvest time, and manna has become man. And the kinsman redeemer from the house of bread has come to you. And he has become the kinsman redeemer for the human race. For the man who hangs on that cross in your place is Naomi's ultimate child, is Naomi's ultimate blessing. He is the God of the shadows. We pray this broadcast has ministered to you today. When you support this ministry with a donation of any size, we'll send you the book, Soul Care, Becoming Whole in a Broken World. 888-244-HOPE. Soul Care is a small 64-page volume filled with practical information on how you can grow as a Christian and even thrive in the tough times ahead. Call now for your copy, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE. Please stop by the website reachingyourheart.com to listen to this message again. That's reachingyourheart.com. We hope you'll join us again next time here on Reaching Your Heart. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.